Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. It's January 1, 2021, Connor. Can you a believe it? A brand new year. A bright, glorious era awaits us ahead. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, three more weeks or so of the Donald Trump era. Speaking of eras, uh, we're going to be talking about... Well, not if the Republicans in the House of Representatives have anything to do with it. Yeah, that's a kind of an intriguing topic. We're going to get into that. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Rest in Peace Don Wells from uh, the Gilligan's Island show from the 60s. Hilaria Baldwin, our top story tonight. Unbelievable to me that for 24 hours or so, in fact, I know it's a slow news week, but I mean, right. what is really? there to have happen between the, top story you know, the fact tonight? that that's a bigger story than the Nashville suicide bomber is our fourth story yep. to talk about. That's right. Plus, we're going to talk about blowing up Thomas Jefferson's head because sure. uh, always in favor. He was not a woke guy. We kind of knew he wasn't a woke guy. But now uh, with with judging everybody in history by today's standards, then doggone it. I believe that granite head in South Dakota is going to be a pile of rubble. Before long, and any day, Biden's going to go out there himself. He may not be the only head to to Roll. be blown up. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of Biden, I saw a different uh, kind of a different Freudian uh, slip uh, out of Biden. He uh-huh. referred to um, President-elect Harris. And you know, <laughs> it's very, he's very. Yeah. But he's done that several times. Sure, he sure, did it sure. at least once this he's week. He's ready. Um, he's going to retire. He's going to he take office and then immediately just take always that. talking about the Biden-Harris administration, the Biden-Harris administration. Now, when did Richard Nixon ever, ever refer to the Nixon-Agnew administration? That's true. For that matter, you know, when did Bill Clinton ever refer to the Clinton-Gore administration? Like no. people are egotists. Here's and the maybe deal. Biden's the exception. Pretty soon, pay close attention, Connor. Yeah. Pretty soon, he's going to say the Biden, I'm sorry. The Harris Biden. The Biden, Harris Biden administration. So it's only uh, fair. Know, very gracious guy. Yeah. And uh, he's going to involve her heavily yeah. in the, in the administration. Yeah. Exactly right. So, I mean, what do vice presidents even do? You got to give it, throw them a bone. Like, they don't even have a job. Well, actually, January 6th, we might discover she's breaking the tie in the Senate and is thus the most important person on the planet. Yeah, that's true. So, by the way, if you are new or relatively new to Too Many Lawyers podcast, um, I'm a libertarian baby boomer. Connor is a progressive millennial. And what do you know? Uh, we, we end up just agreeing exactly on everything. Every single thing we talk of, about. of thoughtful uh, ideas being exchanged. We actually find a way to have a meaningful conversation. And hopefully you, our dear uh, listener, also learns how to have a helpful, productive conversation with somebody with whom you greatly, strongly, deeply disagree. That's the goal. Let's see if we can accomplish the goal. Our top story now, Donald Trump's sore loser. So here's my question. Uh, we know that if he shot somebody in the head on Fifth Avenue and broad daylight, he'd get away with it. Yeah. We we know the long list of things he has gotten away with. Yep. Uh, there's no need to recount the list. Everybody <laughs> has it memorized pretty much in order. Right. Um, is sore loser different? And I'm just wondering because... Getting that label slapped on you, yeah. you're a sore loser. There's so many things that Americans you know, basically dislike uh, about people that, that he, you know, he seems to get away with it. But sore loser is, is a really bad one. I think well, we, we really admire the those. idea of somebody being gracious. Well, we... Sure. gracious. What about separating the two out? America hates a loser. 
That's for sure. It's hard to come back from a political loss because people. I don't view think people hate loser. losers. I mean, think of Richard Nixon. I mean, he, people hated him for different reasons, but he was tagged as loser. Okay, mm-hmm. he's vice president for eight years under Eisenhower in the fifties. He had been congressman. He won so U.S. Senate. He won twice as vice president. He won. He goes for the presidency and he loses to John Kennedy in nineteen sixty. And then in sixty two, he makes the decision to go for governor of California, yeah. and he loses. And he was officially branded loser. I don't think people hated him because of that. They just wrote him off. The, yeah. One of the networks actually had uh, the political obituary of Richard Nixon. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it was it was a thing. Yeah. And then suddenly he rises Phoenix-like from the ashes. He was uh, thinking about running in 64, and then Kennedy was assassinated, and Johnson was in there, and there's no way he was going to wade in, and Goldwater had it. But then in 66, he spent the whole year basically gathering chits, helping Republicans around the country, mm-hmm. and, and the strategy was in place. And in 68, doggone it, he, he made this incredible comeback. Now, yeah. do you think people hate losers, or do they not just kind of feel sorry for them or write them off, or maybe think to themselves, well, there's the potential of a Richard Nixon rising Phoenix like yeah. from the ashes. I don't know. Nixon might be the exception that proves the rule. I feel like- So he's majority- an exceptional loser, you <laughs> yeah, say. exactly. I feel like the majority of Amer- of times in somebody, when somebody loses a, uh, an election in American politics, it really is like the death knell, it, especially if it's an election they were supposed to win. Well, Ed is- Stevenson uh, got the nomination from the Democrats in 52 against Eisenhower, and he lost, and they give it to him again in 56 and he lost again he even tried in 60 then and he lost to kennedy so he didn't get the nomination a third time i mean is that an example of somebody who having been branded a loser adlai is never going to get it it's a self-fulfilling prophecy the other maybe the other uh, example that we'll have to see how it plays out in the future is hillary clinton now does she does she voluntarily retiring from politics or if she's trying to step back into the arena would people say look you lost to donald j trump you, you can't beat a ham sandwich. You're the worst candidate ever. Yeah, Is that going to be their When attitude? you combine loser and unlikable, well, then that's a double-barreled yeah. problem. Yeah, we'll, have to deal well, let's get back to that. I, I got mean. us derailed about, you know, whether yeah. people hate losers and so on. The que- the question, I guess, in my mind is, is it going to make a difference mm-hmm. to the 70 million plus who, who voted for Trump when they're thinking about him in four years? Right. Is it going to make a difference that he is absolutely uh, establishing himself as a really, really sore loser? I mean, I like say, unlike any presidential candidate in history. I would say no, given that they have no, had no problem and, in fact, have embraced the fact that he's been a sore winner for the last four years, that he's been relitigating a win yeah. in the Electoral College uh, over and over and over again and, and being can't bitter stand the idea and that, that he lost the popular vote, can't stand the idea yeah. that anybody thinks Russia installed him. Right. So the, if we're looking for, if we if we think that Americans want somebody who's gracious, we're, we're looking at the wrong pool of Americans. There is a pool of Americans out there who does not value being gracious at all, or at least values being ungracious specifically, and it, it inspires them. Given that his share, or his number of raw votes went way up from 16 to 20. I mean, he pulled more people out to the polls. More people were excited to vote for Donald J. Trump after they saw what a horrible, sore winner he was. So is that going to change if you change that label to sore loser? Again, I think he's just going to start claiming, I'm not a sore loser. I'm a sore, uh, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I was robbed and I'm sore about it. So I don't need to be gracious so the, because I didn't really lose. So the weird phenomenon is the whole bunch of Republicans, uh, some in Congress and, mm-hmm. and many people uh, sprinkled throughout the country, 
are, are absolutely lining up with him and are yeah. basically joining the sore loser team. I mean, somebody, there were a couple of uh, leaders of the pack, I mean, the, among the House Republicans who right. on January 6th are going to object and hope Vice President Pence and does the right And they claim thing. that 140 House Republicans, which is a massive majority of the, what, 190 yeah, some be, odd? Yeah, it'd be about two-thirds of the House Republicans. Two-thirds of the Republicans in the House are going to, on January 6th, when the electoral votes are counted, are going to say, we don't recognize the win of Joe Biden, and instead we would like to, you know, object to the results. So Josh Hawley is a Republican from, like, Missouri or, or someplace uh, who's uh, really— One of uh, those flyover states. Partly. Uh, a uh, bit out of the way. Um, it It is not even a flyover state. It's, it's too far out of the way to be a flyover state. No. Um, th- this is a guy who—this is a guy who, who went on uh, TV this last week and said, you know, the voices of 70, you know, whatever million Americans or 60-some million Americans, uh, you know, are being silenced and are, are wrong. This is a guy who doesn't understand the concept of— if you have fewer votes, you lose the election. Like, that's just how democracy works in this country. If you want a more representative democracy, you can change the country, people. Uh, you can make it a proportional representation and system. It, and is it as basic as Ben Sass, the Nebraska senator who's a, a big Trump critic, Republican, mm-hmm. though? Mm-hmm. It, it is, is it as simple as his theory, which is these Republicans who just won't give it up are simply abandoning what's right and their principles because they see this gigantic, low-hanging fruit of 70 million Trumpsters right. who may be looking for a new political home in four right. years because Trump exactly. may not be around. Yes. And so that that's what they're trying to now, do. Now, I'm no SAS fan. I'm not a, a, a Ben a, a Ben Stan or whatever. Um, but uh, in fact, I very, very much dislike him and his religiosity and how he wants to force it on everybody else. But in this one specific scenario, despite not ever having to give it to uh, him, um, I agree with him that, as he put it, these people are institutional arsonists. They see the opportunity to steal some of Trump's uh, populist glory. And Trump's base are populist in the sense that they want to burn down the advantage that they perceive elites have over them. And that means any government institution, because the uh, government, the the conservative project for the last 50, 60 ish years since about 1960, 1950 has been uh, all government is bad and all government institutions are just worse than we would do in a feral state of nature if we just let corporations run everything instead uh, and had had no oversight at all. And so the idea of burning down any government institution is attractive. If if you, if the 140 Senate Republicans came out and said, well, we just think Trump got a raw deal, so we're going to literally burn down the state house, uh, the, the, you know, the House of Representatives with Congress. As a symbol, we're going to burn down the building. Trump's base would be on board. They don't care about norms. They don't care about institutions. They don't care about the history of American politics and how amazingly it's worked. All they care about is finding new ways to flip the bird to their political enemies, and and they'll latch on to literally anything, no matter the consequences uh, for America's So many people are saying that that is an accurate description of what Trump has done with respect to the Georgia Senate races, because Mm. his attitude is he's so angry at so many Republicans who, since the election uh, in November, have not stood by him and agreed with him that, that 
that he was ripped off and he really did win bigly, that he just doesn't give a damn uh, whether the Republicans win down there or not. And maybe that would be a, a fit. Or punishment. maybe he even wants them to lose because in his That'll view. lead to uh, the apocalypse over the next two years, which will make things more receptive for I him in four years. I don't think he'll actually. No, he doesn't drink the Kool-Aid. He doesn't actually think that the Democrats will lead to the apocalypse. He knows that the country will run you know, smoothly as the gears of, of the government get re-greased and go back to being the way they were. Because and, he has so much common sense stuffed into his brain? Well, because he knows that Democrats want to run the government. He thinks Democrats will run the government, but that will allow him, just like when Obama was running the government with relatively large amount of grease in the wheels and things were going smoothly, uh, he will see be able to point at that and say, look at this big government machine that is destroying your lives. It doesn't matter that the, the Democrats won't torpedo the country. He will just have the narrative. They're in power. And as you have pointed out many times, the pendulum swings, right? Americans see one party in power and their lives aren't perfect and amazing and utopian in every way. And they right. say, you're right. I'm going to change things. I want to switch it back. Let's go back the other way. You know, we've had four years of Biden now and and that we don't even have universal health care. I don't think they're even going to give it to us. You know what? Darn it. Protest vote Trump time. You know, if Mitch McConnell were smart, Connor, what he would do between, I think he's pretty smart, but okay. between now and Tuesday is he would look at the, the polls. He'd yeah. give the absolute best, most accurate polls about mm-hmm. the two races. Mm-hmm. He'd figure out which Republican is more likely to win than the other. Maybe one's up by 2.3 and yeah. the other's up yeah. point four, by 0.4. And he would say, screw the loser. <laughs> I'm putting every one of our remaining dollars into helping the one because all he needs is one of those two, that will allow yeah, the Republicans I think to, absolutely to right. have a majority. Well, when this podcast uh, uh, launches, uh, drops uh, on uh, Wednesday next, the 6th of January. And then mid. We'll know. Yeah, we'll know unless it's super close and there's some sort of a... Yeah, we got we to gotta special send this pod to Mitch so to make sure he gets that advice <laughs> before it drops to the general We don't have public. to send it, Connor. He'll... Uh, you know, oh, you're right, because it won't drop yet. Uh, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Would, exactly. you, would you email it to him? I'm going to email it to, you, to you've, Mitch. You've got his personal email. I do. Right? I do. We're, we're very close personal friends. When we come back, uh, Hilaria Baldwin, our top story tonight. <laughs> but first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Well, you're listening to this podcast on a podcast uh, app. Uh, unless you found the raw file on the RoyalOaks.com website, which would be very impressive. That's um, probably how Mitch is going to get it. Yeah, exactly. He follows up uh, real quick every episode. But but you use a podcast uh, content platform like pod, uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or Podcast Addict or any other. And every single one of those has their own different rating and comment system and subscription system. So whatever system you're using, and please, if you use multiple, that would be glorious. Uh, just go on and rate us, subscribe to us. Even if you're only going to listen to it on one platform, but you have it like on your desktop and on your uh, your phone, do us a favor and rate us on both platforms because uh, everyone helps and we really appreciate it. Five stars. This is uh, too many lawyers. Subliminal advertising. Five, five stars. stars. Yeah, five stars. Yeah, I think we've mission accomplished. I'm going to change it. my name to Connor Five Stars Oaks, <laughs> just so you know. We'll be right back. This is too many lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks, and I'm still Connor Oaks. Hilaria Baldwin. Uh, love the name uh, Baldwin, not Hilaria. Right. Uh, talk this about is wife of Alec. Yeah. Baldwin. Talk about a slow news week, Connor. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm flipping channels. I'm watching CNN. I'm watching right. Fox. Okay, I'm just watching Fox. But I know. <laughs> uh, for about a 24-hour news cycle this past week, that was the big deal. I mean, I mean it's so who, juicy. Who cares if she fudged her Spanish heritage? I mean, it's so juicy. This is something that all Americans, left and right, can join hands on and 
Well, uh, I didn't see much angry. attack against her from the progressives. Oh, I mean, my God. I get that Alec vicious. has been very, very mean to, well, that's to Donald thing. Trump. And it's, so right-wingers want to, you know, drag so, him and his so wife through, through the mud if Background, for those who don't know what's going on, Hilaria Baldwin was born, I believe, Hillary Baldwin in, like, the, in the U.S., um, and Massachusetts, in Massachusetts. And at some point in her life, she started telling people that people that her mother was Spanish, as in from Spain, from Europe. And then at another point in her life, she started telling people that she was born in Spain. So it turned out neither her mother nor she was born in Spain. Uh, she does speak Spanish, but she doesn't. Uh, she has no ethnic connection to Spain or the language. And apparently they say she faked her accent. And she times. started at some point. You've got video of her a couple of years back when she has no accent at all. And it's not like she has any scenario where she's faking it. And she's Hillary. Um, and then at some point. But it she, was OK when when Hillary Clinton spoke to black audiences with a black accent. I mean, uh, nobody complained about that. Except Republicans. Yeah. Well, there's code switching, certainly. Uh, uh, but but I think that was more aptly described as pandering uh, by by Hillary. Mm -hmm. uh, but hopefully not insulting, but just pandering. But this is somebody who's a, a white person who's appropriating the identity and saying, actually, uh, while I, I may look a, a certain way and come from a certain background or anything else, I am appropriating this culture as my own. And it's it's basically, you know, Rachel Dolezal uh, uh, all over again, right? This is this is pretending to be black. Yeah, this is uh, Hilaria Dolezal. And so well, the, the left was united with the right. Well, the left hated this cultural appropriation and the right. But the hates left didn't have Alec a problem. Baldwin. Didn't have a problem with Elizabeth Warren claiming to be a Cherokee the, princess. The left absolutely has a problem with uh, Elizabeth Warren claiming to be one sixteenth uh, Cherokee. I must have missed the paper or, that day. And, and, you know, claiming to to have like secret family recipes that she shares that are the whitest imaginable mayonnaise. <laughs> Actually, she white got them out of garbage. the New York Times. Right, exactly. That was, that was the fun fact. And so it's this, of course, the left has problems with this, but does the Democratic Party establishment who wants to use Elizabeth Warren to accomplish what they perceive as really great things, and she has a massive amount of name recognition and everything else, is are they going to throw all that away for this mistake that Elizabeth Warren uh, made that some people feel is, is disqualifying and shows she has really bad judgment. Should, well, do I think they should torpedo her, her whole career? I don't know. I don't think so. I think this bad thing is outweighed by the good things that she has done and, and the good stances that she takes. Uh, I don't think you have to right, cancel everybody, but we're, we're not like cancel culture is not really a real thing. People who aren't were previously not you know suffering consequences are still pretty much not suffering consequences. And it's largely like liberal infighting that, that we see as cancel culture. And so I think this kind of bleeds into the conversation we might have a little later about the uh, big stone heads in South Dakota um, and, and the, the, the monuments, because Jefferson was a, a complicated figure who had some good stuff and some bad stuff. And as society changes, it is OK to look backwards and say, while we're judging him with our eyes now, we might want to change our opinion of him uh, based on how we weigh the good and bad things that he did at one point. So based uh, on not to Alec, totally derail us from Hilaria, well, to, who's finish, hilarious. to finish up uh, with Alec Baldwin and Hilaria, based on how fabulous Alec Baldwin's performance was in Glengarry Glen Ross. So good. I'm willing to give him and his family a pass. Her uh, performance, actually, in the clip where she 
uh, is on some sort of daytime talk show or something uh, being interviewed. Right. And it's like a cooking segment and they're going through a recipe. It's probably like a Spanish family recipe or something horrible. Um, she is doing this segment and at one point she's got the strong Spanish accent and she she reaches for the, uh, a cucumber and she says, oh, uh, the, how do you say in English? <laughs> and the host, well, maybe she really didn't remember how to says, say cucumber. Oh, it says cucumber. She, oh, yes. It's like, come on. You know, come on, lady. I, I, I kind of compare Hilaria to presidential kids and maybe it's an imperfect analogy, mm. but I think people generally think that it's really not fair to go after presidential kids. I mean, you know, or celebrity wives uh, or well, husbands I, or whatever. I kind celebrity of analogize it because yeah. if you hate Alec Baldwin because, oh my gosh, he made fun of Donald Trump on SNL. Or yells you, at his daughter. Uh, right. And you want to look for any way to, to make him unhappy. Going after his wife for, you know, uh, fudging her, her ethnic heritage. I don't know. It just seems like overkill. Plus, you are going to get punched in the nose if, if Alex but sees Alec, you. Alex Baldwin's fist is subway. already bald. Absolutely. Look, I agree and she should get zero flack because you hate Alec. She deserves her own flack in this case. Unlike poor Chelsea Clinton, who got tons of flack because of Clinton's uh, misbehavior, um, uh, her father, uh, Hilaria deserves the flack she's getting, at least in part, uh, for you know, what she actually did herself. So you, you raised the issue of uh, Thomas Jefferson. I yeah. believe you mentioned Stonehenge, which, yes, is in uh, yeah. South Dakota. Correct. So uh, Los Angeles Times had an op-ed uh, this week. Uh, Thomas Jefferson sits atop Mount Rushmore primarily because he wrote the magic words of American history. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's better than Hemingway, right? Yeah. So he uh, was a slave owner. Right. He's up on the mountain, right. uh, they say in the LA Times. So what Jefferson... He's not just a slave owner. He also did a bunch of other stuff, like had sex with a bunch of slaves, which is rape, and fathered a bunch of children by them. So they say what Jefferson, it's frozen silent on Mount Rushmore's granite facade, would say to us about his double-barreled legacy, the good and the bad, yeah. is unknowable. This is a historian, Joseph Ellis. So what do you say? Do we get the world's foremost precision dynamite expert, mm -hmm. the guy who can uh, blow up uh, just Jefferson's face off of Mount Rushmore. I think Uncle Eddie and leave, probably do it. And leave the others? Or do we have to say, well, Washington had slaves too, so we better blow up his head. So this is, as and I was saying. And we talked last week about the fact that Abraham Lincoln, doggone it, is going to come down off the name for probably of, of a Native high Americans. school in San Francisco. Yeah, even though he did some good stuff right. for, for uh, with respect to slavery. But still, he wasn't perfect. Shall we blow up all three heads and just leave Teddy Roosevelt so, sitting there with his glasses? So monuments are a funny thing. When you put up a monument, well, you don't just say the way you say when in a you history When you say funny, book. you mean funny ha-ha like a Woody Allen joke or, yeah. or funny strange like a Woody Allen marriage? Good question. Good question. So when you have uh, a chapter on the presidency of Abraham Lincoln in your high school civics textbook, the chapter begins with Abraham Lincoln's legacy is positive for this reason, negative for this reason. Here is accomplishments in this part. He kept the war, uh, the country together through a civil war. Uh, he, you know, Emancipation Proclamation, which in a sense on paper sort of kind of freed the slaves. Um, and, you know, he did all these other things. And then he also had these treatments of Native Americans that are uh, problematic. And then you have a chapter in, in history, uh, in your history civics textbook, um, for Thomas Jefferson, and it says he wrote the, uh, these amazing words, and he did this amazing thing, and then the Federalist Papers this, and then the public argument that, and the American Revolution this, and then and all this good stuff and all this bad stuff, and it's all very complicated, and you can write 
hundreds and hundreds of PhD theses about the good and the bad. PhD what? Oh, theses. Yeah, exactly. What you don't get with a statue of Thomas Jefferson is any of that. You don't get the context. And that's the scary, funny, like a Woody Allen marriage kind of thing about statues is that they exalt. That's all they do. Nobody puts up a statue of uh, of Hitler and and says like, well, it's complicated. We don't celebrate everything he he did or supported, but he was a good artist or whatever, right? He was a vegetarian, at right. least. Like the, the 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 statues are without nuance, and you can't put up a statue without accepting that what you're saying is without nuance. We endorse this guy, and so you gotta find pretty lily, you know, perfect. Uh, characters to choose to exalt. Mother if, Teresa. Except she was extremely problematic. She was no. obsessed with pain and death and she uh, exalted it over uh, over you know actually being cured because she felt that people you, via suffering earned their afterlife. very high standards. So she there. basically just had a, a, a poor house full of suffering dying people who she did not try to Looks cure. Like a and she just syndrome. felt like God gave you this illness. You're suffering yeah. it for a reason. Uh, you're going to suffer it out and if you die you'll you know have earned your, your salvation. This, the, people are not perfect. Yeah. It's really hard so the new one put up statues up. So why are we sticking to our guns and saying it was a good idea to exalt this guy who was flawed now in 2020? What can can we never take a statue down? No matter what the person did, just because it's a statue, just because they did some good too, just because there's history involved, just because the statue's old. Who cares? I think the troublesome part about the nuanced uh, focus yeah. for, for many Americans is, is this, and it relates to the uh, Reverend Raphael Warnack. A candidacy for the U.S. Senate down in Georgia. Okay. He uh, said, and uh, the, the recording has been played endlessly on a loop on Fox News and right wing um, talk show hosts on radio. He said some time ago that uh, Castro's legacy is complex. Yes. It's complex. And we know what he means by that. Um, yes, it is an island prison camp where all the civil liberties we take for granted uh, are uh, non-existent. Uh, he would murder his uh, political opponents. On the other hand, um, health insurance, uh, everybody gets free health care, literacy rates and so on. So he deems it complex. And, right. and of course, people right of center say, don't talk to me about complex. I know what the guy is. The guy was a mass murderer. Okay, so then he says... So Warnock would probably say, tear down statues of Castro, well, but me, acknowledge that he also deserves maybe, a place in maybe. history books as an important, influential figure. But, but here's figure. part two of what he said. He paused, and then he said, just like America's history is complex. And I think that's where people have a real problem with folks who want to focus on how Castro's uh, legacy is complex. To compare Castro's Cuba with America's history is it rejects the idea that America is better somehow than Castro's Cuba. And a lot of people refuse to accept the idea that yeah. America, because of its flaws, mm -hmm. is better. And the difficulty is if you don't have a nation that considers itself exceptional, then you're not going to be united. You're not going to be strong. Mm. And the bad guys across the sea who are united and strong, they're united because they're totalitarian probably, are going to 
are going to come over and sooner or later. I don't like that at all. Well, I like it because if you don't have a nation that respects the the heritage of America and the fact that we have this miracle uh, born of the Enlightenment of, of Republican uh, uh, government, uh, basically this revolutionary idea, the doggone it. We're not going to put up with the totalitarianism of the last several millennia. Instead, our government is going to be a unique experiment. They work for us, and when they screw up, we fire them. They do what we want. That's the essence of American democracy. I disagree. And it has resulted in the most successful experiment in in government and and republican uh republicanism in the history of the world and if people don't appreciate that and are not willing to you know fight and die for it as you have to do sometimes every Mm -hmm. 30 or 50 or 60 years when you have a war then i think that's going to result in us being subject to folks coming across the sea and having their way with us now that's, you know, maybe I'm making uh, too big a deal out of Reverend Warnack's comment about complex legacy. But I think that his comment really is symbolic of the way a lot of people see America today. And I think it's dangerous if we don't have a nation that's united and strong and fully cognizant and aware of all the horrible things that exist in our history. But they also recognize that on balance, on balance, it has been an amazing, wonderful run in freedom and democracy. And if anybody thinks that we aren't better than the Soviet Union was or current Russia is now or communist China now or Canada, then 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 I think they've got a serious impairment in judgment. I think I think there are a lot of people who have really good judgment who look around at the rest of the world and say, hey, look, there are actually a ton of super uh, well-run countries out there who maybe looked at the American experiment and said, holy cow, that's really a really good idea. The idea We're going to borrow the good parts? Yeah. We, we, we dislike, we American revolutionaries, they, they disliked uh, the government that they were uh, living under. And they said, we're going to make big, dramatic changes that might require blood, sweat, and tears in order to make a, a better country, in fact, the best country in the world. And Canada and the UK and, uh, you know, tons of other countries uh, all did the exact same thing. J- Japan is a great example that after Imperial Japan, World War II, uh, that system ended. They looked at American democracy, well, at the point of a gun uh, from America, and they said, that sounds like a great idea. And they did it. And it worked incredibly well, differently than ours, but incredibly well. And everybody, the, the willingness to accept the flaws of the past, understand that they were flaws and change the direction of your country. I think that's the most important thing. That's what we should learn from American revolutionaries is that we should, oh, the British Empire has, is a, it's a big, creates big problems and it, it is terrible to its people. So we're going to dramatically change what we did. Imperial Japan, they had, had big problems and they were terrible to other people. And they were going to change what they did. And we're going to go with the Americans forward you know, towards democracy and the future and open, you know, capitalism and the rest. And that's, it's great that they saw that. And it's great that they went that direction. And the idea that we would say in 2020, stop looking at, 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 at the, at history, stop looking at nuance, stop looking at who did what wrong in the past and thus what we should change in the future. And instead just stand on top of your country, clutching your flag and say, this country is the greatest country in the world and, and as, is the most successful experiment and not look at every other country that also has conducted experiments and been successful in many ways and failed in other ways and take the best from all of it. Instead to say that we shouldn't think about the nuance 
Uh, and instead, we just have to know that we're the best. American exceptionalism is straight up mathematically wrong. We're not the top category in anything except frickin' disp- defense spending. Well, just as we predicted at the st- top of the show, we would end up agreeing. I, I agree everything. with you. We should uh, take into account everything, the good and the bad. Yeah. It, I, I might come to a different conclusion than yeah. others, but absolutely you have to look at the good and the bad. When we come back, uh, an RV trip that went terribly, terribly wrong. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Colin. So what's the deal? This guy named Warner... Um, yeah, whatever his name is, who cares? I don't even like to he dignify He picks Christmas. People. Right. So this, and, and he warns people. Right. And he plays music. And right. he says it's going to blow up. I mean, in a way, if you're going to do this horrible thing, I guess when nobody's around Christmas warning and you give a warning, I guess it's the best possible way so this to do is, something horrible. So this is, for, for a little background, this is a, 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 a suicide bomb that went off and leveled a large part of a city block in Nashville, Tennessee last week, and it has gotten extremely light coverage. Now, any news, idea of the motive? Have they figured out a motive yet? Who knows? Other than just pure suicide? Who knows? And 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 there's no... Uh, the, the problem with examining motive in these scenarios is that when you go and you find out things were bad in a person's life, it becomes an apologia. And so you write an article that just says, man, this guy's life, as it says, this guy's life was spiraling out of control. Well, what but does it that depends mean? on the circumstances. That, that monster guy who was a depressed airline pilot who decided to fly his full of people jet into a mountainside what, right. four years ago. I don't think anybody apologized for him. Everybody just said, hey, pal, I don't care what your problems were. How dare you yeah, of course. end the lives yeah. of 150 people now, and, fortunately, and all of their family members and friends of course. suffering as well. And fortunately, in this scenario, a, a, although a bunch of people were injured and a lot of damage was done, nobody died except the suicide bomber himself. Right. And so that's a, a fantastic outcome compared to what could have been. But we don't know the motivation for this guy. We probably will never mo- know the motivation for this guy. The important part that arises in my mind out of this uh, out of this uh, uh, event is that it, it, it once again shows us how when the perpetrator is a, a, a white male, the story gets basically no coverage, and he gets labeled a lone wolf or a deranged loner. But and- if he were black or brown, but had absolutely no connection with uh, Islam or anything overseas, don't you think this the coverage would be basically the same? No, uh, I, I don't. I because I, I so we I should fire the media. Look back at a lot of times that people, uh, uh, people of, of any marginalized group at all, who are. Um, who commit crimes and immediately their crime is imputed to the group. This is a problem of the culture this person came from. This is a problem of the way the, these people raise their parents. This is a problem of this religion. This is a problem of uh, whatever, this ethnicity, anything. Um, and we we see a, a bunch of, uh, you know, racist tropes thrown around. And then um, when somebody is uh, a white male, a member of the predominant culture in America and the predominant gender in America, um, instead, the immediate reaction is to say, loner, specifically to say, this is not representative of the culture at large. This is not representative of white people. This is not representative of men. This is not their fault. Now, nobody said uh, it was saying that it was their fault, but immediately before it even starts, the defense mechanism of this can't be our fault because this is our culture. And the craziest thing about it is that white male American culture is seen as American culture. And 
people, even who are not members of that culture, will leap to its defense and say, well, that's America. And therefore, there can be nothing wrong with it because to attack uh, this guy and who he is and where he came from and, and try to examine why he did this um, would be an attack on America. And nobody's even trying to do that. And the problem is not with this specific event. Who cares if you lab- label this guy uh, a, a loner? The problem is labeling every single one a deranged loner. And the problem is not ha- t- using the same lens to analyze anybody else who commits these crimes. So, yeah, this is not in the news. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's afraid. There are no congressional acts uh, limiting immigration to and from different countries uh, that we're you know, suddenly more afraid of for no good reason. Instead, it's just, oh, it happened. They move on. So finally, let's talk about something that is in the news. And to me, it's very peculiar that it is it's to, this, to this degree. Oh, no way. And it's and it's similar to the Hilari Baldwin. I mean, I, I said earlier in the podcast, you know, what a slow news week. And we're getting <laughs> so much attention to Hilaria. Uh, and it's just amazing. So now let's move to Don Wells. Oh, Don no. Wells played um, Marianne on the Gilgan's Island a sitcom from the 1960s. She passed at, I believe, 81 this week of COVID. Uh, I was blown away by the volume of coverage of her death, the appreciations, the obituaries, the lengthy obituaries. And I'm asking myself, look, I lived through the 60s and I watched Gilligan's Island. uh, All three seasons. Was not a favorite uh, of mine. It wasn't up there with with The Fugitive and and The Twilight Zone and so on. But, you know, it, it was on the radar screen. But it was a fairly minor chunk of 60s television, and she was part of an ensemble cast, and she wasn't exactly a big star. So why in the world did we see, I mean, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, why did we see so much attention? I mean, we learned that she was the Miss Nevada in the 1959 uh, a Miss America pageant. We, we, we People talked about the significance of what she meant as a girl next door and so on. And I'm thinking to myself, if somebody were on an equivalent kind of show in the 80s or 90s and they passed, I don't think it would be a blip on the radar screen. And I'm wondering if what has happened here in our culture over the last 50, 60 years is that television was such a huge part of our life yeah. in the 50s. Basically, three channels. Right. And Milton Berle, Jackie Gleason, Sid Caesar, Lucille Ball were so popular that when they had a big night, they had 30, 50, 70 million people watching, a huge percentage, a majority of the population. Whereas now, I mean, there is no more water cooler. Right. We are totally balkanized. We have hundreds and hundreds of media choices. Peak TV, as they say. So the first question is, is that the explanation for why we are showering attention to the passing of Don Wells? And then the second question, I guess I would have is, is it, is it a shame? Are we into this sociological syndrome of the author who wrote the book uh, Bowling Alone? And I think his point was we used to bowl in leagues. We used to hang out with each other. And now everybody is doing everything alone. They're focused on their their screen. You know, if they lose their iPhone, it's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that what has happened in terms of, uh, and of course now, now we see this past horrendous COVID year where you don't even have, you not only don't have a, a water cooler, you don't have an office to go yeah. to. Everybody. I mean, not everybody, but so many professional people who are you know, uh, able to not be exposed and not have to get out there and risk their life uh, the way all the first responders and all the, 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 the people who have done such wonderful work uh, risking their lives, helping others this last year. I mean, it's like we're totally atomized. I would say that 
in my opinion, that COVID has put the lie to the bowling alone hypothesis. I actually think that the idea of bowling alone concept, like which you know, it, it's literally it purported to be a sociological study where they look at the reduction in the number of bowling leagues and say, therefore, Americans are more atomized, dif- separated, not. You, you know, think they fake the numbers? It's not that they fake the numbers; it's that they didn't take into account the fact that bowling just got less popular, <laughs> among uh, many other factors that just changed the way Americans interact. Yeah. I think that uh, a lot of people's attitudes, oh, well, we just know. get all they may have interact. corrected for that. Well, they didn't, and that they got a lot of flack for that and other problems where they kind of just took random anecdotal evidence and said, see, it all kind of adds up to Americans becoming separate, atomized, spread apart. So setting aside the flaws of that study, you don't think that people uh, are more disconnected? I I think that the fact that we were, uh, the fact that we are so unhappy during COVID that it's tearing society apart, that there are people breaking quarantine restrictions and risking their lives and their parents' lives and their friends' parents' lives and everybody else. Don't tell me to wear a mask. Right. And that, that the people who are obeying the restrictions are still miserable because of the disconnection uh, that we all know that electronic communication does not uh, satisfy, does not replace in-person communication. And that actually, as of 2019, February, before all this, you know, locked us down, we were actually connecting with people. We were getting a lot out of those interpersonal connections, and we've now lost that. So the unhappiness we're feeling now, to me, proves that we're actually, we weren't atomized before that. Now, are we atomized during COVID? Yes. I mean, I'm literally atomized. I haven't seen my friends in forever, and it's killing me. And everybody else is feeling the exact same thing. And they're desperate to find tiny little exceptions where they can, you know, wave at somebody with masks on outside at a 10-foot distance for 15 minutes or whatever. Like, that is that becomes this perfectly, amazingly valuable interaction that you think about for a day. Mm-hmm. Whereas previously, if you walk by this person on the street, you might not have even said hello. It'd be like, oh, God, I got to talk to that guy. So we aren't that separate. And really, it, it, I, I think that uh, Americans, although we, we have more media to talk about, we're still swept up by Game of Thrones and there's a virtual water cooler. And then we talk about it at the literal water cooler. And, you know, it's it's still a, there are still cultural phenomena that unite us and pull us together. I, I, I think that you're probably absolutely Absolutely right about why Don Wells got so much attention because there were so few things to talk about. But you know, if uh, if a minor character on Game of Thrones dies, because yeah, you, that's not going to you know pull a lot of headlines for exactly the reason you highlighted. But I don't think that now that we have more TV that atomizes our interests and our you know, our celebrity gossip, that we are therefore also as a as a country uh, more atomized. Well, I think that we should see this as a glasses half full opportunity because COVID. Yeah, because okay. uh, you've got uh, millions and millions of lives that have been snuffed out. Yeah, but you've also uh, gone through a situation that, as you were just describing, where lives were turned upside down, routines were totally destroyed. And it's like the old song, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone. Mm-hmm. The the simple pleasures of life of being able to, you know, see friends, of go, going to a restaurant, having a drink, you know, hang out with, with people at the office. Yeah. Those things I think we really miss. We I've seen several columns recently now that there is light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines coming. And I think people recognize that as, as horrible as the surge is and this scary stuff about ICU beds being filled and doctors having to decide you know, you're going to live and you're going to die. I think people 
kind of get the fact that herd immunity isn't that many months are, uh, off and we are going to get through this. Yeah. And hopefully people will look back on 2020 and in addition to all the negative memories of it, uh, they'll they'll recognize that, you know, you got to appreciate uh, the, the normalcy of life. But in terms of your point about, about Game of Thrones and so on, the, the problem is... <laughs> You know, in a society in the 50s and 60s where there are three or four or five equivalents of Game of Thrones, as opposed to now, I mean, oh, no, you know, I like Breaking Bad. Boy. Oh, no, you know, I, I like uh, – there are thousands of, of, of cultural touchstones. They're like pebbles on, on the beach. And I, I just – I think it drives us apart when we don't have a relatively small number of shared experiences. Now, maybe – Maybe people, you know, people are people and their basic natures don't change from 30, 50, 60 years uh, over the last several decades. But uh, I mean, I think there's something about uh, like a family shared is, cultural is, experience. A family yeah. is strong and bonds because there are just three or six or eight or 10 of them. And they have, you know, dozens of shared experiences that, that kind of linger in their memories. And they look at the photographs and, and they, they, they're tightly knit more so than any other group of people on the planet because of the relatively small, intense uh, number of intense experiences that they share. And I think it, when you think about uh, people's shared experiences today, as opposed to 50 or 60 years ago, I, I mean, I think it just has to make a difference. I, I don't know if, if it's all that bad. Maybe there are advantages that outweigh the fact that we're, we're disconnected to a degree. But I mean, I, I just don't think that when I look around at, at people, even, you know, within my own generation, everybody's interests are so disparate. I just mm -hmm. don't feel like I have as much in common with people as I did a few decades ago i hear you i think that people who are in smaller niche interests though are so much better able to find others i mean if you were a ship in a bottle nerd before you had to subscribe to some magazine you know you're gonna get letters connor yeah i know uh no ship in a bottle nerd those, those are my bros yeah those, those are my people but you had to subscribe to some weird monthly magazine ship in a bottle monthly and uh You'd get them this week, Yankee Clipper and a Pepsi. Right, exactly. And yeah. now there are a hundred Discord channels where you can go and hang out twenty four hours a day with other ship and a bottle nerds and talk to them and share videos on YouTube and all subscribe to each other and get updated anytime anybody builds a, a new ship in a bottle. And it's like the most amazing uh, way, you know, way to connect to each other in the world. And we have it now in a way that we never had before. And so we are in many ways more connected to each other than we ever would have been. But you're right. I think, I think we need another madman. I think John Hamm, give us another madman to bring us all together. I think it brings us full circle to the discussion we had earlier in the podcast about um, people's attitude toward their country. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, what, 190 countries in the world. Yeah. And if you have 360 million Americans whose interest in and loyalty to the other 180 countries is about the same as their interest in and loyalty to America, I don't think you're going to have a very strong society as the decades roll on. And I think that translates to danger. I think you can be as honest uh, and realistic about past horrendous acts and failures as you want. But at the end of the day, you have to say, I am an American. I am loyal to this country. And if I have to sign up and give my life in the army to protect uh, what 
countless millions of Americans have died for in World War One and World War Two and the Civil War and the Revolutionary War, then doggone it, I'm going to do it because I love this country, warts and all. What about if, if you don't have that attitude, then we ain't going to survive. What about the fact? That, what about when Canada is invaded by uh, Norway? And that's their problem. If Connor. you don't, if you don't have this notion that all 190 countries and their citizens all have value and that those people are important. Oh, in their absolutely. Lives and think protected. of the Gulf War. George uh, Bush was brilliant in amassing a coalition of, I think, about 30 nations. If he had just said, doggone it, I don't need anybody. I've, right. I've got a nuclear arsenal. Right. I'm going to take care of Saddam Hussein myself. He's going to roll back out of Kuwait. It right. would have been a disaster yeah, because we wouldn't have been as strong. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm fine with, with international coalitions. And my fear is that if you think, if you, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and, and only think, you know, in terms of, of what I view as propaganda, that America is the greatest country in the world, or that we have, you know, or have no warts, or, or that our, our warts don't matter, or that shouldn't be examined, or we shouldn't be introspective and destructive of our past as we move, uh, you know, sprint towards a brighter future, uh, that you will forget your allies abroad. You'll forget their humanity. You will you will regard the people of Cuba as either prisoners in a death camp uh, or prison guards, and you will not recognize the value uh, that you might uh, glean from when they ship thousands of doctors abroad as Cuba has the highest per capita production of medical doctors, and they ship them all over the world whenever disaster uh, and disease strike in order to help the people of those other countries because they no, want to be friends. I, I, I agree. It's a propaganda I, campaign for how great Cuba is. Yeah, but it's also- We shouldn't turn a blind eye to the to the good things about yeah. countries around the world yeah. that you know we, we may consider at least in, in part- And be, we need another madman. Yes. That too. Let's get John Hamm back. On the phone. I have his number as well, just like Mitch. <laughs> hey, this has been great. Uh, kicking off 2021, Connor. We'll just uh, keep doing it uh, in 2021. We thank, Can't wait. Thank all the listeners for uh, sticking with us here on Too Many Lawyers. Have a great New Year's, everybody. Bye.